You're listening to the St. John's Diamond Creek Podcast, recorded live each Sunday at St. John's Anglican Church, Diamond Creek. This episode presented by Senior Minister Tim Johnson. My name's Tim, I'm the Senior Minister here at St John's and uh, we're doing a series, as Robin mentioned, called The Servant. And we're looking at a book, um, the book of Isaiah, and we're looking at four passages within the book of Isaiah which are called uh, The Servant Songs. Um, They're passages that speak about a figure called The Servant and uh, we're just going to unpack them over the coming weeks. Now, Isaiah is a book of prophecy. There are different types of books in the Bible, and uh, you've kind of got to know different ways of approaching different books of the Bible because they're they're sort of different, they feel different when you read them, uh, and there's some good things to think about. So Isaiah was a prophet, and it's a book of words that he got from God that he then passed on to the people. That's what prophets do. So God speaks to a prophet, and then the prophet brings the words from God to the people. Now, two ways, uh, or two sort of things that God says to prophets in general categories. Sometimes God speaks to a prophet about things that are happening here and now, today. So you see that in the book of Isaiah. God has a lot to say to Isaiah about the way that the nation of Israel, where Isaiah is living, is doing stuff. Um, God has to say that they are not treating the poor very well. God says that they're not necessarily putting God in the place that he deserves, but they're worshipping other things ahead of God. And so Isaiah has to say that to the people. God is not happy about these things, the way you're treating each other and the way you're relating to me and passes on that message. So that's words from God about the present situation that a prophet passes on. But sometimes, too, God speaks words about the future to a prophet. So God will say, here's some things that are going to happen in the future, things that are good things that will be full of hope, or warnings about things that are coming up. Um, So two types of things, things about the present and what's happening, but also things that are going to come in the future. Now I think that when we think about prophecy, and often the way it's, you know, laid out in books or in movies that we might watch. It's mainly the second type of category. We think of prophets as people who tell the future and they sort of sometimes their eyes go funny and they talk in a strange voice when they bring their prophecies. Uh, And you see that all the time. Here's a couple of powerful examples of it. Uh, Harry Potter. I've been taking a survey through the day. I'm hoping that this is going to be my highest hit rate. Who's read a Harry Potter book or seen one of the movies? Have we got 100? We haven't got 100%, but it's better than 8 o'clock this morning. That's excellent. Um, so in the Harry Potter series, the, we learn that the, the Hogwarts teacher, Sybil Trelawney, makes a prophecy which she hands on to Dumbledore about a figure who is going to come in the future. Uh, this is what she says. The one with the power to vanquish the Dark Lord approaches. Born to those who have thrice defied him, born as the seventh month dies. And the Dark Lord will mark him as his equal, but he will have power the Dark Lord knows not. And either must die at the hand of the other, for neither can live while the other survives. The one with the power to vanquish the Dark Lord will be born as the seventh month dies. 
And as you're um, reading the book, you see that the characters in the book are trying to work out who is this figure, who is the one who is going to come and defeat uh, Lord Voldemort. Um, And they're trying to work that out for themselves. They're looking for clues. Um, Whose parents have three times stood up to Voldemort? Who's born in the seventh month? And they're looking out for the figure that's going to come uh, and defeat the evil lord. They're looking for a saviour who can defeat the powers of evil. Uh, another example is the movie The Matrix, show of hands for if you've seen The Matrix, you're not as high a percentage, but pretty good. Similar in that, um, the members of the resistance are waiting for a figure called The One who will come and who will destroy The Matrix and bring peace and end the war that's going on. So Morpheus, speaking to Neo, says, after he died, the oracle prophesied his return and that his coming would hail the destruction of the matrix, end the war, bring freedom to our people. So again, it's a prophecy about a future figure who's going to come, the one, and this one is going to defeat the powers of evil and rescue people, be a saviour. Um, In the book of Isaiah, as we look at these prophecies about the servant, it's kind of like both Harry Potter and the Matrix. But the figure that's being spoken about in these four passages, four songs, is called the servant or the servant of the Lord. It's a mysterious figure that is going to come and that people need to look out for. And it's kind of like there's clues as you read each one of these passages, things that the servant will do, ways that the servant will undertake the things that he does that we'll be looking out for. And so over the next three Sundays, and then on Good Friday as well, we're going to look at uh, each of these passages in order. There's four of them. Now, I also thought it'd be helpful to get a bit of the context for when Isaiah was being written, because it was a long time ago, and sometimes when we come to the Bible, it's hard to get our head around, where does this fit in with the whole story of the Bible? Now, I'm going to get some of the people from Camp Crave to help me here. Um, so come out one at a time. Someone can, can st- I need two to sort of begin with. Come on down and stand at the front. All you have to do is hold a piece of paper, unless I tell you to do something worse. Okay. So Isaiah, who is the prophet, so you are a prophet, you get words from God, you pass them on to the people. And, thanks Holly, uh, Isaiah was um, kind of speaking to people and started this prophesying in about 740 uh, BC, so 740 years before Jesus. Um, Two more people. He lived in the nation of Israel, I'm going to have to start calling, calling out names. Thanks, Chase. Ella, you can come too. So he lived in the nation of, of Israel, um, which is sort of in the, in the Middle East now. And at that time, what had happened was the whole nation of Israel, which was one country, had had a civil war. So the northern part of the country and the southern part of the country uh, had had a war with each other, and they'd separated off, so they became two separate nations. One of the nations in the north was called Israel, and one in the south was called Judah, which means, Ella, you need to be down south, and Chase is up north. Yeah, if you hold it above Ella's head, you're taller, so it should be easier. (laughs) Israel's in the north, Judah's in the south. Um, Andrew, I need a superpower. You are a military superpower. Uh, I can't think of anyone, anyone better. 
At the time that Isaiah is living and prophesying, the superpower is Assyria. Right? They are a very, very strong and powerful nation. Everyone's afraid of them. And during the time of Isaiah, Assyria attacks these two nations. Um, <laughs> and actually, the nation of Israel gets destroyed, totally destroyed. They don't actually exist anymore. Sorry, Chase, you can sit down. So they cease to exist, and there's really just the nation of Judah next. Now, Assyria attacks Judah, and it looks for all money, like powerful Assyria is going to <laughs> destroy little Judah. But they don't. They survive with God's help. They actually survive. And Assyria sort of racks off home, continues to be a superpower, but from a distance. Okay. Now, all of this sort of covers the first 39 chapters of the book of Isaiah. There's 66 chapters in Isaiah. The first 39 is all about Assyria being a superpower and Isaiah speaking um, to these nations while Assyria is on the attack. But in chapter 39, another superpower, Scott Pilkington, um, <laughs> the nation of Babylon. So Assyria, you, you can go home. You, you can take your little Assyria sign. You can go home. Okay. Another... Uh, in chapter 39 of Isaiah, uh, kind of messengers and officials from the nation of Babylon come to visit the king in Judah. And the king at the time says, hi, welcome, great to see you, let me show you my palace, let me show you all of my treasures, look how much gold I've got, isn't it impressive, and showing them around. And Isaiah says to the king, you idiot. Babylon are going to come back and they're going to steal all that treasure that you've been showing off to them um, because they know how much you've got and it's not going to end well for you. But here's the good news. It won't happen in your lifetime. And it doesn't. It takes about 100 years and then Babylon comes back, attacks little Judah. Sorry, Judah, this time you don't survive. They're not completely destroyed. What happens is Bab Babylon, they destroy the cities they destroy the temple, which is the centre of the place that people meet to worship God. And they take all of the people back with them to Babylon. So you guys can go and sit down together-ish. Or go back to your seats. No, you, you can keep being Babylon. And Judah, J Judah, imagine Judah goes back and lives, the people of Judah go back and live as captives, really, um, in uh, Babylon. That all happens about 587 BC, that uh, Babylon finally defeats Judah. So hold that up, Holly. Here's a strange thing about the book of Isaiah. All right? Isaiah is living and writing in 740 BC. Right? And he makes a, a sort of a message about what's going to happen. The Babylonians are going to defeat the people of Judah, which they do. But from chapter 40 onwards in the book of Isaiah... What we have are prophetic messages spoken to the people who are in exile, um, telling them that there's still hope and that God is with them. Uh, chapter 40 of Isaiah starts with the words, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Words of comfort in the midst of being captives in a foreign nation. Now here's the weird thing that might stand out to you. 
right? This is a long time from 740 BC to 587 BC, and Isaiah is dead by the time that this is spoken. So how come the book keeps going for 17 chapters from chapter 40 to chapter 66, speaking prophetic messages to people in captivity when Isaiah is dead? How is that even possible? Okay, thanks. You can grab a seat. Here's two possibilities for what could happen. Thanks, Holly. Here's two possibilities for what could happen, how this could have come about. Firstly, it's possible, because Isaiah is a prophet, right? So God tells him things about the future. One possibility is Isaiah writes stuff down during his lifetime and then file that away somewhere for later, put it in a time capsule, bring it out when it's needed, when this future event happens that is going to happen. And there's even a hint in the book of Isaiah. So in chapter 8, verse 16, um, Isaiah says, bind up this testimony of warning and seal up God's instructions among my disciples. So he's saying, you know, put stuff away for later. Put it in a time capsule. This will be needed later. And so one possibility is that he wrote all this stuff down, what they were going to need to hear later, and then it's brought out in captivity to hear God's words to them in this future situation. The second possibility is there's another prophet who comes and writes messages from God for this new situation with the people being captive in Babylon. And that is what is passed on to the people in those chapters. Now, whichever way you go, and it doesn't really matter, when you come to the New Testament, the second part of the Bible, the words of Isaiah, all of it, the first 39 chapters plus the second half, are all quoted as God's word, that they have authority, that they need to be listened to by the people living in Israel, and therefore by us as well, as God's word to us as well as to them. But it's helpful to think about because there is this sort of strange time lag that's going on. Now, the four servant songs that we'll be looking at all come in the second half of the book. They're all after chapter 40. So the context in which Isaiah is speaking and writing, that people are hearing these words, is that they are prisoners and captives in a foreign country. Their whole nation has been destroyed the temple, which is the place that they met with God, a symbol of God's presence with them, has been destroyed. And they're kind of devastated living as prisoners somewhere else. And there's a question going through their heads, which is, why did God let this happen? Doesn't God care about us? And what's God going to do about it? So it's in that context that we come to these servant songs, which give hope that the servant will come and he'll start to put things right. So Mez is going to come and read our Bible reading. Uh, it's from Isaiah 42, and that's on page 588 if you want to follow it in the Bibles or on your phone. Thanks. Oh, it's already open. Nice. Um, yeah, so we're reading Isaiah 42, uh, verses 1 to 9. I'll give you a couple of seconds to find that if you want to find in the Bibles or follow along on an app of your choice. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break 
and a smouldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness, he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his teaching, the islands will put their hope. This is what God the Lord says, the creator of the heavens who stretches them out, who spreads out the earth with all that springs from it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and I will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles, to open eyes that are blind and to free captives from prison and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. See, the former things have taken place and new things I declare. Before they spring into being, I announce them to you. Thanks, Mez. So as we come to this passage, what we have is God speaking to the people of Judah and saying to them, I'm going to send the servant, my servant, who's going to do these things. One of the challenges when you're reading through these prophecies of Isaiah is trying to work out who is the servant, right? It's a pretty general term, isn't it, to call someone the servant? And in the book of Isaiah itself, a number of people are actually referred to as God's servant. So Isaiah himself is called God's servant. There's another guy called Eliakim, who's a sort of a senior official serving the king. He's called God's servant. And Israel itself, the nation of Israel or Judah, who are still left, are also referred to by God as my servant. So every time you um, are reading these servant songs, if you're hearing it for the first time, hearing Isaiah speak, you're going, who's he talking about? Is he talking about all of us, the whole nation? Uh, Is he talking about a group within our nation? Or is he talking about a single person who's going to come? It's kind of like in Harry Potter where you have that prophecy. When it's first given... um, It's possible that it could be Neville Longbottom or Harry Potter who's being spoken about, isn't it? Their parents have three times defied Lord Voldemort. They're born in the same month. And it's not clear exactly who's being spoken about. It's only when the servant actually comes that everything becomes clear and you go, aha, I see now who they're speaking about. But what will the servant do? The emphasis, as as Robin said earlier in this passage, is on justice. So have a look at verse 1. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. And then in verses 3 and 4, we read, In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged until he establishes justice on earth. So what's justice? What are we talking about when we're talking about justice? It's not uncommon um, if you uh, see the news uh, every now and again to see people outside of a courtroom, something's happened to maybe their son or their daughter, and they are there demanding justice. And what they mean is they want the person who has done this to be punished appropriately because of what they've done. Justice is actually making sure that people get the right 
consequences for what they've done. That's part of what is being spoken about when justice is spoken about in the Bible. It's not all of it, but it's part of it. Um, In fact, in the Bible, the word that is translated here as justice can be translated as judgment as well. Um, Sort of same meaning, a judgment, a fair judgment is really what justice is. Now, if you were one of the people of Judah, um, Ella living in captivity in Babylon, if you're one of those people, all of this bad stuff's happened to you, a foreign power's killed heaps of your family and friends and smashed your cities down, and God speaks about justice, what are you thinking? You're thinking, those Babylonians are going to get what they deserve. God's going to get them. But when you read here about justice, you see that it's bigger than that, because God talks about the servant establishing justice all over the earth and for all of the nations. This is bigger than just Judah, who's being spoken to getting some justice for what's happened to them, the servant is going to come and bring justice all out through the world, including, it says, that the, the islands will hope in him, which must mean sort of you know, distant lands over the sea, far away from the people being spoken to, will also get justice, and will, the servant coming will impact them as well. So this is a big picture of the servant coming and bringing justice for everyone, Everywhere. Now, justice in the Bible, uh, in the Old Testament, the first half of the Bible, comes up probably around 200 times. And its most basic meaning is that people are treated equally. So if you're a judge and two people come before you, it shouldn't matter who the people are, you should make your judgment on the facts of the case and not the people, whether they're men or women, rich or poor, It shouldn't matter if you are acting justly and rightly. Justice means treating people equally regardless of who they are. That's why, by the way, the symbol of justice has a blindfold when justice uh, is portrayed. There's a blindfold on because, like, well, I can't see whether it's Diane or David who's here before me. It doesn't matter. I need to weigh up the facts of the case properly regardless of the people if I'm going to act justly. That's what justice is about, getting what is fair regardless of who the people are. And you get a strong idea of this in the passage that we've got. So down in verse 5, it speaks about God, and it describes God as the creator of the heavens who stretches them out, who spreads out the earth with all that springs from it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk on it. So it emphasises the fact that God is powerful in creating everything in the world, but it focuses in and says God gives breath and life to every single person, which means God cares about every single person and wants them to be treated with dignity and respect and wants them to have justice because he made them and he made them in his image. Um, I read a story this week about Archbishop Desmond Tutu. So he was a South African church leader during a a period in South African history called apartheid where black people in South Africa were discriminated against in terrible ways by the white uh, governing power. And Desmond Tutu was actually one of the key people fighting against apartheid. And after it was demolished, 
He oversaw a Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which ensured that people didn't go on attacking and killing each other um, after um, apartheid was resolved. So he was a really key figure in that period of history. And he was asked in an interview once, what was the defining moment of his life? Now, I don't know what you'd answer if you were asked what the defining moment of your life is. That's a pretty big question. But he said, when I was nine years old, I was walking along the street with my mum. And they were walking along the footpath. And in those days in South Africa, if black people were walking down the footpath and a white person came, the black people had to step into the gutter to allow the white person to pass. And as the white person went past, to bow their head as a sign of respect for the white person. So he's walking down the street with his mum, and a tall white man starts coming the other way. But before they've got time to step into the gutter, the, the white guy steps into the gutter. And as he goes past, he tips his hat to Desmond Tutu's mother as a sign of respect to her. And Desmond Tutu said, who is, who is that guy? And it turns out it was a guy called Trevor Huddleston, who was an Anglican minister at the time, who was opposed to uh, apartheid in South Africa. And it was just a little act where he was saying, no, whether you're black or white, you're worthy of respect. I'm going to step into the, the gutter and show dignity to this woman who's here. And Desmond Tutu impacted him so much, he said, if that is what someone who is a follower of God and a minister in God's church does and treats people, that's what I want to do with my life. And he went in and became a minister in the church and an archbishop in South Africa and key in fighting apartheid. But that's God's attitude to people. He wants everyone to be shown dignity and respect, equality for all people regardless of who they are, modelled by that guy Trevor Huddleston. When you read about justice in the Bible... Most commonly, the word justice appears linked with one of four groups of people. Widows, orphans, immigrants, and the poor. And when justice is spoken about in the Old Testament, the first part of the Bible, it's emphasising that these vulnerable groups of people need justice like everyone else. Those four groups of people would have been the most vulnerable types of people in ancient society where it was an agricultural society. If you couldn't grow stuff, if you couldn't work, you basically were in danger of starving. And they were probably days away all the time from starvation, those groups of people. And God emphasises how much showing justice to those people matters and how God himself is on the side of the weaker members of society and the most vulnerable. It shouldn't be hard for us to expand the list if we follow the sort of theme of their society and compare it to our society and think about the vulnerable people that God is concerned about today in our society. Refugees, the homeless, victims of family violence and other abuse, indigenous Australians. In the Bible, the justice of a society, how just a society is, is measured against how the most vulnerable people in the society are treated. And neglecting the weaker members of society is a violation of justice 
as far as God is concerned. God loves and defends those who have the least power. And so he promises here that when the servant comes, he will bring this sort of justice and he'll bring it throughout the earth. So how's he going to do that? Well, it's not fully explained in this Bible passage, but there's clues. So verse 1, he's going to be empowered by God's Holy Spirit. God says, I'll put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. So if you're looking out for clues for who this servant is, it's going to be someone that God's Holy Spirit comes upon and everything that he does is going to be empowered by God's spirit. He's going to be a teacher. He's going to bring God's word to people. Verse 4, in his teaching, the islands will put their hope. He's going to be gentle and he's going to care for people. That's what's being spoken about in verses 2 and 3 when it says, he will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smouldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he'll bring forth justice. So when this servant comes, it's not going to be like Justice League. He's not going to come in, you know, I don't know much about Justice League. I might have, am I on the, on the mark there? Justice League, power, might, that sort of thing. Yeah? It'll be good when he comes. That's right. It won't be like a military conqueror coming to bring justice. It's not kind of, there needs to be justice, so I'm going to smash everyone up and make sure that there is justice. He's gentle about it. Um, Like, you don't even hear his voice out in the street. He's not shouting and carrying on. There's not a whole lot going on in that department. And he cares for the most vulnerable people. So bruised reeds and smouldering wicks. Have we got the picture there, Nick? A smouldering wick is kind of a candle that's just about to go out. And a breath of wind could blow it out. But he's going to be careful to nurture the flame and revive the most vulnerable people and look after them. And so when, because of all these sorts of prophecies about the servant and what he's going to look like, these sorts of clues are indicators when Jesus comes along. They look at the ministry of Jesus and they realise that Jesus himself is this servant that Isaiah was speaking about. So in Matthew, one of the accounts of Jesus' life, one of the Gospels, uh, in Matthew chapter 12, there's a man who comes before Jesus um, in the synagogue, kind of like the church of the time, and he had a shriveled hand, a hand that he couldn't use. And in those days, he would have been very poor, very, he wouldn't have been able to work, so he would have been extremely vulnerable. And Jesus healed his shriveled hand. He completely restores it so that it works and he can work. But the trouble is Jesus does it on the Sabbath day, a special day when people aren't supposed to work, and the religious leaders have a go at Jesus. They end up in an argument, and at the end of it, we're told they go away with plans to kill Jesus because of what he's done. And so Jesus escapes from what's going on, goes to quieter places, continues to heal people, but when he heals people, he says, don't tell anyone what I've done. Keep this on the quiet but he continues to show love and care and helps people. And at the end of telling us all of this stuff about what Jesus does in that chapter, Matthew then quotes Isaiah 42, first four verses of Isaiah 42, and says that Jesus is the one who is doing all of these things. 
because of his commitment to healing people, helping the vulnerable, uh, bringing justice and restoration, it shows that he is the spirit-empowered servant that God had promised to send to bring justice. And you only need to read um, one of the accounts of Jesus' life in the Bible to see the way that he treats people. Whether it's rich people or poor people, men or women, young or old, from a variety of racial groups, Jesus treats them with love and care. He gives them dignity as people who are made by God and made to reflect God's image. Now, of course, that raises a question. You might have this question in your mind. Okay, then. If Jesus is the servant, how come we don't have justice all around the world? You don't have to look very far, do you, to see how much injustice is taking place in our world. If Jesus is the servant, why isn't there justice for all of the nations and all over the world? And the Bible's answer is because Jesus hasn't finished all the work that he's doing yet. He hasn't finished his work. So in the earthly life and ministry of Jesus, we see him demonstrating what justice looks like, acting as the servant of the Lord and showing what mercy and justice and care and dignity looks like in action. After Jesus' death on the cross and rising back to life, he goes back up into heaven and we're told that he's seated there at the right hand of God, which is like the position of power and authority where he will come back to judge both the living and the dead. It's the final judgment that we're waiting for or the final justice when Jesus will come back and restore justice fully and deal with all the wrongs that need to be righted. At that time, God's intimate and infinite knowledge of situations will enable true justice to be done fully. And even those people who've got away with injustice now will have to face up to Jesus, who is the judge. Now, that's got implications for us too, doesn't it? Because all of us, um, knowingly or unknowingly, contribute to injustice that takes place. We might treat people not with the dignity they deserve, we might be indifferent and passive about injustices that are going on around us and don't care about it because we've got power, so why should we worry about those who are being abused and mistreated? And that's why the good news that the Bible gives us is good news for all of us, that in Jesus we can have forgiveness for the things that we've done knowingly and unknowingly that we won't have to face the consequences of all of our sins and injustices because Jesus forgives them through his death on the cross. There's two implications as I finish up through all of this, I think. Firstly, I think it should give us hope in the midst of despair. Sometimes you can look around at the world around you and you can see so much bad stuff happening, so much injustice taking place, and maybe in your own life you have been a victim of injustice, something has happened to you, and you can't see how it's going to be put right anytime soon or even in this lifetime. Someone with power could have taken advantage of you and abused you, and they've got away with it, and it seems unfair, unjust. 
But if Jesus truly is the servant who is going to bring complete justice to the world, then we don't need to despair that injustice will go undealt with forever. Jesus will deal with it, and he'll deal with it completely. It might not be in the timing that we want, but it will happen in God's timing. So the first implication is, even in the midst of despair, when we see bad stuff happening, we can have hope because of Jesus that he will fix it and deal with it fully. But secondly, we should also be committed to working for justice now. Because if that's what the future is going to be, if Jesus is going to come back and bring complete justice and set the world completely right the way that it should be, then if we are followers of Jesus the servant, we should be acting now for the future and putting into practice now the things that Jesus would want us to be doing. So the fact that Jesus is going to come back and put everything right at the end shouldn't mean we can go, oh, don't worry about it. Forget about it. Jesus will fix it later. I don't need to worry about it. The opposite is true. It should inspire us, it should empower us, and it should motivate us to actually be acting now for justice looking at people with the dignity and respect that Jesus would see them with and that he shows in the way that he treats people when you look at his life. It shouldn't be a cause for complacency and indifference, but a call to action for us who have God's spirit empowering us to work for the justice, care and dignity, especially for the people who are most vulnerable and that God cares about deeply. Let me pray for us, uh, and then Robin's going to tell us what's happening next. Jesus, thank you that you are the servant who came and that you will bring complete justice to our world. Uh, Help us to have hope as we look to you, knowing that you will do this, but help us also to be inspired to action as we act with justice, following you, the servant of the Lord. Amen. Thanks for joining us. If you've got any questions about this podcast, connect with us on our website, stjohnsdc.org.au or at facebook.com slash stjohnsdc. Don't forget, you can join us live in Diamond Creek every Sunday at 9.30am and 6pm.